For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew, in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as one beating in the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. The word of the Lord. All right. As I mentioned, this is our uh, extended time of prayer, longer than we've uh, been used to, but it's shaped around the Lord's Prayer. And so would you, uh, would you join me as I pray? Father in heaven, this evening we acknowledge and stand before you. Some of us have walked with you for years. We reaffirm your authority over us and our faith in your loving care for us, greater than any earthly father could ever give. Some of us aren't so sure, but we're here. We look to you to reveal yourself to us. We long for someone to tell us who we are. We long to be safe and secure. We long for wisdom and guidance. You reveal yourself as holy, set apart from all others, and good. We come to you hoping in your unique ability to speak to and anchor our souls. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You know what to do. You know how to do it. You know how to glorify yourself. You know how we should love one another. You know how to build your church and open the eyes of the blind to faith. You've promised that Jesus will return, that a new city of peace will descend to the earth when you make all things new when all the bad things come untrue, and we place our trust in your good plan. Your kingdom come, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We have many needs. Some of us just need provision. We need money to come in. We need food to eat. We need a job or a tool for our trade. We are hurting and suffering and need healing. Some of us need deep assurance and help in our souls. We are very worried and we need peace. We are very afraid, and we need your presence. We are very unsure, and we need your guidance. We are grieving and need your comfort. We need you and the things you provide in your providence. So give us this day our daily bread. At a deeper level, we need mercy and forgiveness. We aren't the type of people we should be. We can't stop stop focusing on ourselves. We don't prioritize you and our lives. We don't worship you or meditate on your word like we should. We don't love other people the way that we want to be loved. In fact, we harm others. We lie. We cheat. We profit off of other people's backs. We give our time and attention to your gifts and not to you. And therefore, we worship idols. And what's worse, we hold grudges against others. We look down on others who sin as if we do not. We think think we're better than other people that you have given grace to, so we are arrogant in the face of our guilt. Help us to receive your grace and extend it to others. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. The truth is, God, we are liable to do all of this again. We need your help. As our good Father, you know what's best for us, even if we don't like it. You discipline the children that you love, and we need that and we submit ourselves to you. We cast our anxieties upon you because you care for us. Our spiritual enemy prowls after us in ways that we don't recognize, and we need your deliverance. By your spirit, please convict and guide us, protect and discipline us in your love. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This world is yours. The future is in your hands. You alone can open our eyes to your goodness. You alone can break our hearts of stone. And you alone are good. 
We praise you for your goodness and your grace. We praise you for the wisdom of the cross of Jesus and for our restoration. We praise you for your gift of the Holy Spirit, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. All right, now's the time where the kids can be uh, dismissed back into the back. Uh, we've got a few volunteers back there, and so if you'd like, your, your kids are welcome to stay with you, by the way. That's not something you have to do, uh, but if you'd like, you can uh, take them back there for a second. And uh, just, just by a few, a few words of uh, casual introduction before we enter in, uh, it was kind of interesting to think back about uh, the first service of the year last year, which seems about three months ago to me for some reason. I don't know about you. But I remember having the thought and sharing, and I said, I'd seen a lot of kind of buzz about how uh, 2021, everybody was like, 2020 was terrible. Thank God it's over. And I remember saying, what do you think has changed? <laughs> I don't know if you remember that, but I was like, nothing's changed. We're still, you know, not everything got fixed because that calendar rolled. And uh, I'm not a prophet, but it seems like that was kind of accurate. Um, anyway, and so, so this past year, we really, uh, we really tried to dig in to ideas around kind of what it was like to be a church in a tumultuous time where there were, uh, where there were difficulties. That was last year. Uh, this year, things still aren't fixed because the calendar rolled, um, but we're trying to press this time into not so much like what's it like when things are hard, but just to say, what have we always been about as a church? as our church and as the big church of Jesus Christ over the ages. Let's just get back to what it's always been about, saturating that for a year or so. So that's the plan. And we've kind of got several uh, smaller series to do that this time. Uh, we're going to go through the book of First Peter to just look at the nature of the church. That'll be later in the year. Uh, we're going to go just through like basic doctrines of the faith, and we're going to look at those from different angles, different scriptural angles. Uh, but this first sermon series is on uh, yeah, 1 Corinthians 9, as you just heard, 19 to 27. Um, and that's what we're going to get into now. So I think all the kids are dropped off, so I'm going to pray one more time briefly and jump in. So Father in heaven, thank you for these people. Thank you for your church. May the words of our mouths, the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. So uh, this series we're going into is, in fact, the same one that I preached back when I planted a little church called Midtown. So Midtown was a, a little church with a small group. There were about like eight to ten of us when we, when we started off. And uh, we, were, we were getting started in, here in town. We were a, kind of a small group of another church uh, that branched out. And this is, uh, this is where we anchored things. And I, and I think that this, would, this stuff is still true of especially, I would say, um, my sense of call to, to reach our city. But the truth is, it's coming from the scriptures. It's just true of the church. And I think that this is a really great place to kind of just anchor back in. I'm looking forward to reexamining it. I wish I still had recordings of what I said before so I could double check and make sure it was the same. But It'll be close. It'll be pretty close. So we're going all the way back. Um, if you ever ask the questions, uh, you know, why here at Mission? Um, are we talking about things the way that we do? Why do we work with the community the way that we do? Um, why are we trying to, to talk to skeptical people? The answer lies in this text. Uh, this is where we're getting a lot of that idea. Um, also, this isn't just old idea. This is stuff that we've rehashed here at the church. So uh, a couple years ago, um, we had discovered actually somebody who attended this church, went to a church in Colorado, and I, I saw something about that church and what they were, you know, and I was curious about it. I wanted to see what it was all about. I read a book by the pastor, and he described uh, their, their approach as being an outpost. And so you, you all have heard us talk about that. We have this little logo. That's the, the name of this series. Um, and and his, his book was interesting, but I really sensed, as I read it, uh, a kindred calling, a similar mission, and similar tensions and struggles that they'd faced. 
It was one of those books where you read it and you go, ah, my people, or something like that. And so we decided to talk about that as elders, and rather than come up with a new name for it, we talked about, is there some other better word? And we, uh, we just adopted his, um, because it, it seemed to be helpful. And I want to explain this to you a little bit before I dig into this scripture, um, so you understand where, where this is going, and kind of what this little word and idea means. So, what's an outpost? Um, this is normally like a military or government idea, um, and a lot of times it's viewed as, uh, as being on the offense. So you might put an outpost out somewhere outside of your kingdom or outside of your country um, where you, you want to scout things out and you want to see growth and you want to see development or something like that. But, a, but an outpost is also truly a place that's receptive, kind of like an embassy where people who are moving into a territory could meet people, engage with people, and ideally come to trust people of a different community or a different nation. And so those stationed at an outpost belong to a group, and they're out on the very edge, and they have a mission to represent their country or the members of it, and they're out in that space, and they're actively learning and discerning like a scout, and they're giving word back to others, and they're saying, hey, it's crazy out here, or something like that. Um, and they're also there to be engaging and receptive and to build trust. And in Christian circles, we tend to, we have some categories, right? And we tend to talk about, uh, we've got, there's, there's your pastors and, their, and your church members, and there's missionaries. This is a category that we're pretty used to. And that, I don't, I don't have a problem with the concept of it, but there's a, a little bit of a tweak I want to suggest that we need to consider because there's no biblical office of the missionary, actually. There isn't. There's elders, deacons, apostles, prophets, and there's members of Jesus' church. And all of the members of Jesus' church were given a commission by Jesus, Matthew 28, um, that they are to go to Jerusalem, and this is now Acts 1, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So if you were to ask who, what people are sent, who are missionaries, the answer is every single one of us. That's, that's the answer. And some go far and some go near, right? And so then those people aren't just to go, the, they don't just talk, right? They, they disciple, they teach, they baptize. So this includes things that would mean that people might change their mind. Somebody who gets baptized is somebody who's saying, I am entering into this belief system. I've, I've changed my mind. And a disciple is somebody who walks along and says, I want to learn your ways. And actually, truly, disciples don't always happen. Sometimes we think it's like you get baptized and then you become a disciple. I, I think the way it often works is that you begin following along with something, engaging with something, talking to somebody, and you go, I actually believe this. Then you get baptized and then you keep walking. So the baptism might come in the middle of the discipling, right? So that's the church's missionary task, to take the gospel out, to disciple people, to baptize them, and to teach them. That's the missionary task, and it belongs to every single Christian. Some stay close, some go far. So therefore, in a sense... I think every church should consider themselves an outpost, however they want to call it. People with a mission who are discipling people to follow Jesus and who are encouraging them to look at who Jesus is to teach them. That's our mission. That's your mission. And if we look around in our experiences, it seems like you know some churches embrace this idea and some don't. Um, but, but the point really is, it's our calling. And then the question just becomes the particular. So where do I go? What do I do exactly? How does this work? And that's what Paul was addressing to the church in Corinth when we find him here in, in 1 Corinthians 9. And that's where I think it's helpful for us as a church to be and to return over and over again. I, I have to confess, as a leader, one of the things that I struggle to do is I, I think when I've said a thing, it's embedded in people's minds forever, even though I know that's not how it works when I hear a thing, right? So I think we need to talk about this 
more and more, over and over. Here is our calling. Here's what we do. So this year, we're, we're starting with this idea. Um, God has placed us. He's given us a mission. Here we are. We're here. We're in this body of believers. We're in this community. We're in this city. Um, so what will our outpost of the church do, and how will we do it? And today, we begin with the very, very foundational ideas of the first verse of this, verse 19 alone, and there's a lot in here. For though I am free from all, Paul says, I made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. And we're going to learn about from this the state of a missionary, the posture of a missionary, the aim of a missionary. And you go, wow, Andy, three points. Good job. Um, we've seen this before. Well, seriously, for though I am free from all, there's the state of the missionary. I've made myself a servant to all. There's the posture of the missionary that I might win more of them. There's the aim of the missionary. That's what we're going to talk about, okay? So the state of the missionary. It, here, it takes, uh, we need context to understand what Paul has been saying and why he's gotten to this point. A lot of times we go through an entire book of the Bible, and that's helpful. Um, but every once in a while, there's a downside to that. You can lose the forest for the trees. And so sometimes when you're in Romans for, you know, as, as uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones did, I think he was in Romans for 14 years. When you're in Romans 12, you can look back at Romans 1 and go, I don't remember <laughs> how that connects to Romans 12, right? So every once in a while, it's okay to jump into something and just build build some context. So here we go. I want to give you a little bit of a, a picture of what's happening. Um, Corinth, I've been, I've been going through this book over and over again to try to just saturate in it. And the church in Corinth is not in perfect shape um, at all. Uh, but Paul encourages them at the beginning. He says, you have all this knowledge. And you start to see him, though, you know, come in and go, your knowledge is helping. And then at other times going, your knowledge is hurting, interestingly. So he affirms their knowledge and goes, it's helping and it's hurting sometimes. They're trying to figure out how to deal with, with people who accept the gospel and then live in ways that seem troublesome. So there's a, a particular situation that he addresses in the book, which is a, of sexual nature. Somebody is living out something that even in this previously pagan city, they're going, is this okay? And Paul is saying, no, it's not actually okay. Um, they're trying to figure out how to go about collecting money to support another church. They're trying to figure out how to gather together effectively. What is orderly? What's unorderly? There are all these questions they're asking Paul. And they're trying to figure out what to do when people don't agree on an issue. And in this case, that issue is eating food that's sacrificed to idols. And if you're kind of following along in the book of 1 Corinthians, we're now in 1 Corinthians 8 when he's talking about food sacrificed to idols. And then our text comes very soon after in 9. So that's Paul's been answering questions. The most recent one is about food sacrificed to idols. And Paul's just said to them, uh, look, you can have knowledge on this particular issue about food sacrificed to idols and still do the wrong thing if you don't love people. And then down further in 1 Corinthians 13, there's what we know as the love chapter, and it gets read at a lot of weddings and stuff, but we should probably read it more in the context of arguments in the church because he's coming around and bringing this love thing home, and he's saying, if you, have a, you might have a lot of knowledge, but if you do not love, you're like what? Like a clanging cymbal, which I love Josh Selvey, but if I had to sit next to that drum set while he just banged on that cymbal, it'd get a little bit old, right? He says that, that's what it's like when you have a lot of knowledge and you don't love. So, we could just pause for a moment on that one, right? And just go, okay, our world might need to hear that. Our world might need to hear that, okay? Um, we could be right and do wrong if we don't love. We need to hear that. We need to hear that. But Paul essentially, he goes on from there and he's saying, you can have knowledge, and, and what would the knowledge be? With food sacrificed to idols, I'm trying to pull in a lot of there's a lot of 1 Corinthians here, but here's the essence of his argument. He says, look, as a Christian, we're justified by one thing, our faith in Jesus Christ. So it doesn't really matter where your food's been. It's not going to make you unjustified if you eat it. You don't need to worry about this. But 
That doesn't mean that if somebody else is very troubled because they used to sacrifice, you know, food to idols or they maybe are still like, they're teetering on their, on their faith and they're not sure what to do and this eating food sacrifice to idols thing is repulsive to them and you know that, then don't eat it. That, that's essentially what he's saying. He's saying you can have knowledge the food is not actually changing your, your eternal state or your acceptability to God. You can know that. And then you could go ahead and eat it in front of somebody and sin against them because they needed you to serve and care for them, not to exercise your rights. So that's basically what Paul is working out here. That's what he's talking about. And that the reason for that is that the, great, the greatest commandment is to love. And if your neighbor or your fellow believer is hindered in faith, you should prioritize love over your knowledge. So Paul's having this discussion with them, and then he explains his strategy for missionary engagement. Basically, he says, this is what, how I want you to go out into the world. I want you to go out loving, not ex- exercising your rights. Here's why. It's because that's what I did when I reached out to you. That's my pattern for how I reach other people. And that's what he's explaining here. He brings out some other things. He talks about how he, um, Paul, and a fellow leader, Apollos, they had been talking about which one of them was really their leader and who they were really going to you know, listen to and follow and stuff like that. And Paul, Paul had already said, this is silly. He'd, he'd really, he, he was actually more harsh than that. Um, but he, he was saying to them, look, here's the thing. You're out here debating about all that. I came to you and I didn't even charge you for what I've done. So Paul's saying, I, I worked on the side. I actually, you never even paid me for what I did. Here's what I was doing. I was serving you when I could have asked you to pay me. I could reasonably, because the Old Testament even says the, the ox deserves the grain that it eats. I mean, I could have asked you to pay me, but I didn't even ask you to pay me. I came and I served you to the level that I worked double hard to bring the gospel to you. That's what I did for you. And so he comes and he says, look, I am free from all. I didn't have to work for you. I didn't have to do anything for you for free. I didn't have to do any of this. I chose to do it. And just like you are free to eat any meat that you want, you have the knowledge to know you could eat any meat that you want, Also, I don't have to come and serve anybody for free. I don't have to do hard work and sacrifice. I don't have to be beaten and stoned and left out at sea. I don't have to do any of that, but I'm doing it for you. I'm choosing to. He's essentially saying, I'm beyond choosing to. I'm compelled to because the gospel has become my primary motivation. Now, I want to take a second and bring attention to what a powerful, important concept this is. This isn't just a talk to you. Think about this. So, so if you're in this room and you're a Christian, um, we need to learn to do this. This is a Christian church. It's not automatic. This is something we have to be discipled into doing. Um, if people are going to know that they are loved, and if they are going to know the power of the gospel, they are going to know more, they need to know more about how much we love them them than how much we think we know the truth. And here's, here's what I mean by that. Do I care about knowing the truth? Absolutely. But I'm saying one of those two things has power and efficacy in the heart to change a heart's orientation toward Jesus. And the powerful one, the most powerful one, is experiencing love, genuine love, and being served. When someone experiences being loved and being served, it is more effective than learning that they are wrong in your estimation. Okay? Now, if you're exploring Christianity... I want to I put this out there. Why would this be a valuable thing, this thing that Christianity is offering, this idea um, of being free but choosing to serve? This is a strange thing. This is, a, this is a, a thing that our society can't figure out, okay? 
are, if you were to step out and, and try to imagine this, if you, were to, if you were to just, I don't know, fly to Kyrgyzstan, watch the news about us or something, there, you would see that we are in a whiplash in our society between the ideals of freedom and love. And we don't know where one ends and the other begins, right? We want freedom of expression and self and sexuality and our rights. And, and you can hear me, I hope, not talking about the left or the right. I'm talking about this is the left and the right are both doing these things. We're, 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 look, we're trying to figure out how can we have these things. And then the ideals of love and the protection of the vulnerable or law and order, this what is it? Do we get freedom or is it love? And when is it freedom and when is it love? And what, where is it? And if you were to step out and look at our society, the truth is we cannot seem to figure out the lines. We really don't know where they are. Where does expressing our true selves and loving others and seeking justice begin? I was talking to a friend of mine who's in the music industry, and he, he was saying, he was like, I am struggling because, he said, 15, 10, 15 years ago, the thing to do was don't let anybody tell you who you are, and, and with like sexuality, express yourself. Like, say whatever you want to say in the music, live that, that lifestyle, that licentious lifestyle. Don't let anybody tell you you can't do that. That's them holding you back. And he said, now I am scared, we are scared to tell anybody about our past because now if they find out you did that, you will get in trouble. And he was like, it's confused. The, the same society that told me don't let anybody tell you who you are or what you can do is now saying you can't do that. Which one is it and why did they change? As a society, we struggle. We, we don't know what to do. We'll, we'll only, it seems, seek the good of others if it's self-serving enough for us. Now, this, this problem, this idea that, that we need to figure out who tells us what freedom is and who tells us what love is, this, this is huge in history. Like, History tells us exactly what will happen, that, the, that what we will do is we will seek our own good and we will define what freedom is for ourselves and we will trample on people. And, so, and, and history shows us this happens over and over again and whoever gets to kind of make the, the rules will trample on others and people will be oppressed and those who were oppressed will rise up into more powerful positions and oppress again. It's true in the U.S. The, the people who are now considered to be the most oppressive people were once the people fleeing from oppression. It's, that's what happened. Look at Rwanda. Look at, look at terrible situations in history. People once oppressed, rise up. Oppress. It, it doesn't stop. This doesn't stop. We need to learn a different way. And, I'm, and I'm, I feel like I need to say, the only way the church can teach this is by admitting our faults in this area because we have been a part of this over and over again, okay? But if you're just considering faith, look at the incredible possibility. You can have freedom, and that freedom can actually motivate you to subjugate your freedom to love through this gospel, this good news. You can have actual freedom but that freedom can actually compel you to love and to serve instead of to lord it over people. That combination is possible. That's what our world hasn't figured out. And that's what the church has been entrusted with. How beautiful would it be? Don't you wish you could experience it, right? Because Christianity is founded on a God, the freest being in the universe, and his pattern that you see in the scripture is he saves by serving. And when you see that your God has saved you by serving, you can actually have the power within you to choose to lay your life down in service even though you are free. The two can coexist. And that's unique among the religions and philosophies of the world, the harmony of these two things. 
because our God is a serving and gracious God. So when we talk about being an outpost church Christian, you don't have to do this. Like, as I'm looking out, on, you don't have to, like, consider yourself to be on a mission. You, you have, if you believe in Jesus, you're justified by faith. You don't have to do anything. But then again, the God who saved you, who's brought you in, who's wiped out all of your sins, who's removed them as far as the east is from the west, that's, that's how you got here. And you can serve others the way that he has served you. And you might have the deepest experience of faith possible if you do that. You don't have to, but you get to, right? So we're called to serve as we've been served by Jesus. And the way that looks varies. Um, if you were to look at, a, at an outpost of a, of a nation somewhere, you go find some little outpost in the woods, there'd probably be a lot of different people in there. And they're, they're, they don't have to be there. They've, they've signed up. They've volunteered. They've showed up. They said, I want to be a part of this. I want to I take this, this nation's influence out. And so we're, we're doing that. We're taking the church's influence out to the edge, out where people don't know about it too well. But people would do different things within there. If you were to just to show up at one, undoubtedly, there'd be some kind of scout who would go out and they'd be looking around. There'd be some kind of cook inside making food. There'd be somebody taking care of the grounds and like fixing things. There'd be somebody who headed back to the homeland from time to time to kind of get the news from there and share information back and forth. There'd be all these kind of roles. In the outpost, in a, in a church, in a missionary context, there are all kinds of roles, but it's important that you understand the mission. No matter what your role ends up being, it's important that you understand the mission. Okay? So the gospel missionary is free. We don't do this to earn anything. God is justify us. We don't do it to secure ourselves. Our future is secure. We serve as people who freely choose to. We're compelled and we serve in all sorts of different ways. So the posture of the missionary, I've already said it a million times here, servant. The posture of the missionary is a servant. So then the question becomes, who do you serve? Um, this section makes it very clear, very, very clear. The posture of the Christian on Christ's mission, according to Matthew 28, Acts 1, is to serve people who do not believe the gospel. Now, this one is extremely important, and I think, I think we, it needs to be said more and more within the church as a whole, because I think a lot of times as church leaders, people like myself, we tend to just talk about serving the church, like please come here and set up chairs. Thank you everyone today who came and served. I appreciate you. Um, Zach thanks you especially. But we tend to think mostly about that, that if we get all that done and we have our thing that we do, we feel like we've kind of accomplished something. And this text is saying, no, you haven't. You haven't. And we're not just to serve one another, though we are. I mean, that's, if that's the love pattern, that's how we help each other. But it's not just come to the church and look around and go, okay, is everybody doing all right? Anybody need to talk? Like, that, that's good. Thank you, thank you, thank you to everybody who's doing that. It is good. But the, the nature of our calling as a church, you could say the reason we set up chairs, the reason we check on it, in on each other is so that we can go out and powerfully serve people who don't believe in Jesus. That's the point, okay? That is what we're called to do, so that some might be saved. And when Paul says that, when he says that some might be saved, what that, I think, infers is he's actually serving a lot of people who aren't showing signs that they're getting saved right now, or maybe ever, but he's still choosing to serve them. They don't have to be in the church, right? Now, I've heard it said that we waste our time when we serve in ways that don't explicitly preach the gospel. And I don't want to skip past this because I think it's a, it's a good critique. We should not be ashamed of the gospel. That happens. There shouldn't be um, this sense that nobody has any clue what we believe in. 
That, that's not being a faithful you know, missionary. Um, we don't want to neglect the gospel, to, to share it with somebody who needs it. I always think about the Seinfeld episode with Elaine and Putty where Elaine discovers that he's a Christian because he had a Jesus fish on his car and she heard a Christian radio station and then she sits down with him and she says, are you a Christian? And he goes, yeah. And she's like, you never said anything? Well, never came up. She said, do you think I'm going to hell? Probably. You know, and she's like, you don't even want to save me? He's like, I mean, I don't know. Figure maybe it come up sometime. So, you know, here's Jerry Seinfeld, and I don't think he's actually, you know, going, I don't think he's about to convert, right? But he is saying, there is something interesting about being a Christian who's absolutely indiscernible unless you happen to hear the radio station in their car, right? If you could date somebody and not know, like, what? And they, they believe this is, like, the most meaningful, important thing in life, and they never brought it up. And that might be some of us sometimes, right? Like, that is a helpful critique. Like, if that's us out in the world, not good. But I also want to push back on this a little bit and say... Here, Paul, if you, again, reading this in the context of this book, is talking to them about the risk of eating meat sacrificed to idols. And the reason they would do that, this comes up later in 1 Corinthians 10, is he says, if you get invited over to somebody's house who's serving meat sacrificed to idols, what do you do? If they don't, bring, if they don't tell you where it comes from, just eat it. If they say where it comes from, then maybe don't, depending on the situation. It's very gray. But what's the context? You're getting invited over to somebody's house who sacrificed meat to idols. Okay, that's a big thing. That's an important thing to see. Because I don't think the context of ancient Corinth is that different from modern Tucson in this regard. You don't normally get invited into somebody's home where they're being hospitable to you and making food for you unless they respect you and know you, and trust you to some degree, right? There, there have to, there's usually some kind of precursors to them saying, would you come into my home and let me, let me make you a meal? And I think that sometimes we have to think like, what, what, what would it take to be that kind of trusted individual? My, my belief here is that we're going to have to serve people we're going to have to be the type of people that are about others, serving them, whether it's just wanting to know how they're doing, caring about them, um, being a, a helpful coworker, whatever it is, being a serving type person to where they would come to the point where they say, I respect you, I would like to have you over. Like, if you're, if you're not there, if you're the person that when you walk into the room as a Christian, they go, please don't come talk to me, please don't come talk to me, or like, I hope I'm not on shift with that girl, like, that probably isn't a good approach. So to put it simply, to witness about a serving Savior, we may have to exhibit the ways of a serving Savior first. To witness about good news, our life may need to feel like good news in the lives of others, right? So, so there's my pushback. People are rarely compelled to hear what's more, most important to someone that they don't really believe cares deeply about them. So we have to serve others. The posture of the missionary is that of a servant. And this is why, as a church, we've made it an aim to be known as servants in our community. This, this is why, if you ever wonder, like, why are you guys doing all these non-Christian things, right? Like, that's, it's a critique I could, I could accept. You, somebody could say that, like, Community Garden, Cyclovia, Sunshine Mile, what a waste of time. You, that could be said, but here's the idea. Like, I would like, I'm trying to lead us into being people who in the community are known for laying down our time and our resources for the sake of others so that we might get invited to dinner. There's the idea. And we're not doing this, we're free. We don't have to do this to be good people. So you're not out there serving to, be, to prove something to somebody. The aim is to do it for them. You know, to, 
to care, to love, to help, because people need help. I've said this like a thousand times here. If you want to get involved in the community and build relationships, like go into your neighborhood and sign up for the neighborhood association. I guarantee nobody's on it, or there's like three people, and you will be promoted very quickly. Why is that? Because people aren't, what, like, why would you give your time, like tons of your time? Like, it's, we're all busy. Everybody in the world's like, I don't have time. The Christian can say, I don't have extra time, but I love my neighbors, and I'm going to serve on a red-taped, filled, boring board for years. We, can, we have the power. We do. And people will let you. They will let you. And they will appreciate it, okay? And you're not doing it to put a check on your, you know, because nobody cares about being on the Neighborhood Association. You don't get a check. You could just serve and help. And then you might find yourself someday, if somebody knows this is a Christian and they're given a ton of time, they might go, do you want to come over and, and have some beef stew? And then you could say, sure thing. And then if they happen to say, you know, we sacrificed this meat to an idol, then you could have a really important spiritual conversation. You see how that works? Okay. When people see us serving and they know who we worship, this is a key thing. When they see us serving and they know who we worship, they will connect the two. People will connect the two. So the Christian on Christ's mission is free, but they're choosing to take the posture of a servant. Why? This is our final point. The aim of the missionary, and Paul is clear about his aim and what our aim should be, that people should be won over and convinced of the truth of the gospel. Now, I think this piece right here is the most difficult for us today. I think this is the part that like walking out into the culture and our friendships that people would say, don't even go there. I don't want to hear anymore. Um, this idea is very contested. A few years ago, um, it was contested on the basis of tolerance, right? It was the idea that, have you noticed, I have not seen that bumper sticker for sale in the last four years, five. That, that bumper sticker dropped off. Um, you know, bumper stickers with four-letter words starting with F, way up, tolerance <laughs> bumper sticker, way down, right? Um, but, back, but a while back, the idea was tolerance. But, but the trouble was, and many people have kind of critiqued this, they said, true tolerance is when someone has truly deeply held beliefs and you listen respectfully and you accept that they believe what they believe and you respect them and you listen. That's tolerance. But what began to be taught was that the idea of tolerance was that you don't ever challenge one another's beliefs. The reason nobody's saying that anymore is because we see it as untenable. We have to challenge other people's beliefs. Look at, look at how like divided up the world is. Like, if we're going to deal with that, you have to contest some beliefs. So the idea of truth is back. In style, it's different, it's back. And, and the people I tend to hear about it the most are oddly... Liberal media. I've heard so much call for truth there. And, and for everybody who doesn't want to listen to liberal media, like, you should at least talk to people who do because they're looking for people who tell the truth. I'm hearing it over and over and over. But Christianity, though, is viewed as oppressive in that space. Looking for truth, not so much for Christianity. And that's, and that's the state. That's where people are at. Um, why is that the case? Because Christianity is viewed as being owned by Western elites that are holding people down. And everybody has a different definition of who the Western elites are. So that's tough. But look, that, that has happened. Um, there are people, there are elites who've used various religions and, and different ideas and ideologies to push people down. They, they, that happens, and it's definitely happened with Christianity. But to appraise Christianity honestly, you have to look at what it is and not just what people have done with it. And this would be true of any other line of thought. So, so by the way, Christian, when you're out there appraising somebody else's viewpoint, to be consistent, you need to not just like condemn what people do with it. You need to look at what it truly is and measure it on its own merits, right? So, Hence, the, you know, the reason you shouldn't have an argument with somebody if you can't state their argument in their own words. If you can't do that, 
you should wait, okay? But if you're considering Christianity, think about this. Here's Paul. He's from the small minority people in the Roman Empire, leading a tiny community. In the, in the, the context of Corinth, the Christian church is absolutely small, absolutely like not in power. Like this, this religion that we're reading about, we talked about this in the Magnificat. You've got Mary, the mother of Jesus. This is, this is an obscure person in one of the smallest nations that's just been beat up and beat up and beat up. Um, the gospel of Jesus Christ was not born from places of power. Jesus is crucified on a Roman cross. This is the most shameful, powerless position anyone could be in. He saves from that position, okay? This, is not, this does not belong to the elites. It happens to be very powerful, and people of power tend to want to utilize it. But this was not born for the elites. The, now, here's, here's the thing that I think is important to know in this type of context. And I'm telling you, this is, this is a concern for people in our community. I'm not just, this isn't just a talk to you. Like, people are frustrated about this. And it's important to know the Christian gospel will not be used. It will not be misused for long. Um, because when the preaching of the gospel ceases to be coupled with gospel-shaped actions, it becomes something, it becomes hypocrisy. So when the, when the truths aren't coupled with love, when the declaration is not coupled with actual service, it becomes hypocrisy because it needs to go down deep. It needs to shape who we are and how we behave. And you can read all throughout the Bible, if you want to figure out who is God really not happy with, and who's he going to have his hardest words for? It is going to be the hypocrites in the middle of his people. That is absolutely true. God does not bless or fight for those who claim to worship him while also worshiping something else. Which is why Paul, in this book, he doesn't go off on the Corinthian government. I mean, do you notice that? Have you ever read a book where Paul is just like, the Galatian council, they're a bunch of, you know, he never does it. Never, ever, 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 ever. He talks to the church and he says, those of you who say you believe this, but you clearly are worshiping something else, like watch out. That's what Paul's doing. That's what Jesus did, by the way. That's what the prophets did, by the way. Like it's Bible wide. God is not a fan of hypocrisy. So if, you, if you're exploring Christianity and you're not a fan of hypocrisy, God understands this, and he's with you in this. Like, maybe Christianity, for what it is, is more aligned with how you feel than you think. So then, with that in mind, is it wrong to try to convince and win people over to the gospel? Of course not. Um, our world is filled with evangelism. It everywhere. Um, Ray and I just had a cool conversation at Bookman's um, with, a, with a guy, and he was saying, he's like, I'm, I'm a humanist at this point, he'd gone, but he'd gone to divinity school and all this stuff. But um, somewhere in there, I was talking about my old neighbor, and I said, he tried to evangelize me more than I tried to evangelize him. And the guy was like, yeah, we humanists are real evangelists. There you go. He said it, not me. But everybody's, everybody's telling what they think is good, Everybody's trying to convince. Everybody's contesting ideas that they think are, are evil and destructive, and everybody's trying to say this is what's good and right and true. That is what it means to be in a society. That's just being human. And if you believe something that's true and withhold it and don't say anything, you are being, I don't know, like disengaged. I don't think that's the answer here. And as you share things that you believe to be good, people will challenge them. Ray and I with this guy, there was challenging, for sure. Um, and, and it must be discerned. Uh, it's, it's not easy. But hopefully, which I think is also true, because the guy gave me his card, there was challenging and a desire for more talk, because there was respect. That's what I hope we can see. Um, but good news, sharing good news is not wrong. You just have to sift out what is good news and what's not good news. And that's, that's just what everybody's going to have to do. So, you know, so, on social media, this is happening. 
Um, I, I just paid to go on a food education challenge. I think someone evangelized me well, is what happened. I, I saw that they're, they evangelized that some people eat for all the wrong reasons, and I was like, I think I do. And then they evangelized that they had a 45-day plan that would help you uh, rethink things about how you eat, and I was like, I think I need that. And then they told me it was 50% off, and I went, I don't know if that's true, but I still think I need to. And then I went and talked to my wife and said, do I need to learn more about how I eat? And she said, yes. <laughs> so I bought it. So you, have to, you just have to discern. There's all sorts of news being shared, and, we, and people have to discern. And so it's not wrong to share good news. Everybody knows that. Everybody knows that, okay? If it's truly good, it'll stand out. If it's truly for your benefit, you'll be able to tell. And if it makes sense of your life and your longings and your pain, then, it, then people will find it to be helpful. So the task for the Christian missionary is to take out a good news that's actually helpful, that actually does engage with what, what are people's, what are, the, what are their longings? What's their pain? What do they truly need? What would save them? What questions are they asking? Talk about that. And if you can begin to, to speak to those things, people might even be pretty receptive to the news that you share, even if, they're, even if they don't think they would be, okay? The Christian missionary brings good news. They're trying to win people over. And it's, and it's not simple. It's not just simple. This is the last thing I want to leave you with. Because if we oversimplify this and just, if, if it's like, it's only like, hey, Jesus died on the cross, I'm telling you, people don't have enough context to understand what that means right now. Or, or they have a lot of damaging context where that just like hits them like a, like a brick in the face. Sometimes that piece of information is where you're at. Sometimes you need to build some context for that piece of information. I'm not saying, I believe Jesus died on the cross for our sins. I believe it is critical for people to know that. I'm just telling you as a Christian missionary, there are like 50 million ways to start talking about who God is. And, and look for all of them. Because here's the good news that we carry, a creator. Like, let's just start there, a creator. I mean, how many, how many people are longing to be understood, to have meaning, to have purpose? The idea of a creator could be talked about over and over again, because if there actually is one, then all sorts of things are true. Then injustices are actually injustices, because a creator made things the way they're supposed to be. And so you can actually have that discussion. And like your life can actually have meaning. You won't, aren't just doing this for, for no discernible ends. Like you're doing them for the one that created you. Um, it means we're embedded with dignity, which means that anything that assaults human dignity is wrong, right? And we can have that discussion. But it also means that we can like wake up in the morning and if we feel completely awful and depressed and worthless, we can act out of the truth that we have a loving God who dignifies us and walk forward no matter how we feel, right? We can discern what is true and false because there's actually a creator who's declared what is good and what is true. Um, it's a news of a God who isn't far off but stoops down to reveal himself. So in a culture that's asking for truth, this is a great opportunity to like come to the idea of like, I mean, this is, this is a philosophical conversation that any of you can have. If, if, if anything is true, there must be some kind of measuring rod for truth. What is it in your context? What is it in your way of thinking? For me, it's, it's God. It's the creator. That's how I do this. How do you do that? You'll, you'll end up in all kinds of interesting conversations if you do that kind of stuff. This God entered into history um, he shows us himself in the majesty of nature. There, I mean, one of the things that everybody's running to is like the beauty of nature, but then you, you get out there and you realize you're lonely and it doesn't solve all your problems. And sometimes your boyfriend hurts you and kills you out there. Unfortunately, I mean, that's what happened months ago, right? Van trip into nature. Like these things, it doesn't solve all the problems, but, but people are looking there. There's, isn't there something out there? Isn't there something beautiful? And yes, this is, this is the power and the majesty uh, of God. 
He gives us beauty in, our, in the capabilities that he gives us. Everything that we're able to do, the amazing rational arguments that we can frame. Like, how do we do this? How did we become so complex? How are we conscious? How do I know I'm talking to you? That's philosophically mind-blowing. People are wondering about that. Have the conversation. But beyond that, far beyond that, is where would we get the motive for mercy? Where would we get the motive for sacrificial love? Everybody, I think, if you look around, everybody believes that we should be a world that's more merciful and sacrificial and loving, that we should be laying down our rights, but nobody wants to do it. Where would we get a motive to do that? The God of the scriptures is that kind of God and could teach us how to do this. God gives us his creation, life and breath. Um, when we worship other things and fail him, he makes a way for us to be restored. He is merciful. He went so far as to enter into our human situation personally, bearing the weight of our temptations, living the way we should have lived, and gave his, his life in our place for our redemption. This is a, this is a deep storyline. This is news. It's at least worth considering. And the Christian outpost centers on the worship of this God. And the Christian, Christian missionary is fueled by this hope and serves because they have been served by this Jesus and aims to see people know this Jesus too. Every Christian's been given a mission by Jesus. That's, that's our idea behind the idea of our church as an outpost. It's that simple. Every Christian is on a mission from Jesus and we're just asking, where are we and what do we do specifically? And we're going to talk about that more in the coming weeks. The missionary is free. She knows she is safe and secure in Jesus, and she doesn't need to do anything to be more justified. We're not doing it for ourselves. But the, but the missionary is compelled to serve because we have been served by a serving God in so many different ways. The aim of our service, the aim of the mission, is to win people over to the God that has sent us. So that's what brings us to the table. That's why, that's why we come here. Um, we have to feed on the servanthood of Jesus to be fueled for the mission. That's the point of church, by the way. I have noticed an absolute correlation. John gave a little, a little talk on this before, but this is probably going to need to be said about 52 times this week. I've noticed an absolute correlation. Those who are feeding on the fellowship of the church are stronger in their mission. And that's why we're here. The body of Christ has been broken. The blood of Christ has been shed out. Not only that, Jesus, when he sits with his disciples, when he's about to be He's about to go into his heaviest servant mode, right? He's about to go into his betrayal, his arrest, his mistrial, his crucifixion. He knows how much he's about to lay down. And what does he say? He takes this bread and he breaks it. My body broken for who? For you. My blood shed for the forgiveness of many. We have a serving Savior. That's who we approach at this table. We're going to do a few things right now. We're going to take a time of confession. This is space for you to come before your serving Savior. I, I don't know what this needs to look like for you tonight. Maybe there's something related to your call, your missionary call, that you need to ask Jesus about, to, to even to repent and say, send me. Um, Maybe you just need to be served by him tonight. Maybe the, the fuel for your ministry just needs to be sustained by the sense that he serves you day in and day out, that he never tires of it, that his mercies are new every morning and great is his faithfulness. Um, perhaps there's something specific going on in your life. Maybe, you're, maybe you know hypocrisy is rampant in your heart and you need to come before him. But here's the good news. He is not a God that cannot be approached with these things. He says, whenever you confess your sins, what's, what's your status? He, he is faithful and just. He will forgive you and cleanse you of all your unrighteousness. You can, you can bring it to him right now, and it'll be wiped away as far as the east is from the west. 
We're going to take this time of confession. Mike's going to lead us out of it as we're going to start to, to worship through song together. And this is a great time to fuel your soul by worshiping the God who serves you. And so fuel yourself for mission. And then I'll come up and serve the Lord's table. Um, again, this is, this is just for anybody who, even with a mustard seed of faith, can say, I believe in the Savior that serves. If you don't believe it, you don't have to come up. We, we'd rather you didn't. But if you do, even just a little bit, you don't have to have strong faith. You just need a little bit. And he is faithful. And he is the one that saves. So you can come and receive that. Giving is in the back. We'll sing together. And at the end, consider it a continuation of this table. We'll have dinner and sit and talk and serve one another. I'm going to pray for us, and then I'll leave two minutes of space for you for confession. Father, you are good. Your mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. It's your faithfulness that keeps us coming back. It's your good news that keeps our souls nourished. It's your servanthood that creates servant hearts within us. So, Father, I ask you by the power of your spirit to do what I cannot do, to do what none of us can convince one another to do, and that is to, to build us up and establish us in our faith and to send us out as a loving, serving, truth-telling, compelling forgiving, gracious, beautiful community of your people. I ask this in the power of your spirit for the good of our neighbors, for the good of our souls, and for your glory. So lead us now as we confess before you.